Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less. I'm still in a closet. I'm still staring at a computer screen at Lisa and her beautiful face. I'm Misty. Hello. Lisa's waving, but this is a, an audio medium, not a visual medium. Oh, hi. Hello, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is it is currently April 25th, so we are still in the thick of quarantine. Who knows how the world will look when this episode comes out sometime in May, at the end of May. Uh, so we are, we are sharing with you the date we're recording because... Maybe we'll sound like big dumb jerks if the world looks totally different. But <laughs> I'm currently in a closet surrounded by pillows and blankets, trying to emulate even a fraction of the beautiful quality we normally have when we're recording at Fairfax Village Studios. Yes, yes. I have, Technically, I am not in a closet. I am at my kitchen table, my dining room table, and I have a, a, a blanket behind me. I cannot be I cannot be covered in blankets and pillows because it is so hot. We're in a heat wave here in LA and my apartment <laughs> is a sweat box. So um yeah. I would faint. I would faint on you, Misty. Yeah, I have no AC in my apartment and I'm deep in a closet. I'm literally like Lisa, you can see there's this big waffle stitch blanket all around me and I've I've deconstructed my couch. My couch cushions are everywhere <laughs> around me, but um if this is your first time joining us, this is a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less. We read and review a popular book each week, a popular self-help book, and we bring you all of the main points about it, we try to think critically about it. We try to make you laugh and highlight what's ridiculous, what's useful, what's wonderful. And we are reading these books so that you don't have to. Because somehow in self-isolation without long commutes and without going to the grocery store, we all have less time than we ever had before in some yeah. twisted vortex of, of space and time. Uh, so if you love what you're hearing, Buy the book, support the author, tell all your friends, um, condescend to them. But if you Please. don't like what you're hearing, you know you can skip the book. And it's just a big old waste of time. And we're not saying burn books, but we're not saying don't burn them. So with that, <laughs> we will hop right in. If they're right a dumpster in. fire already, <laughs> just jump right in. Today, I bring you The Dance of Anger, A Woman's Guide to Changing the Patterns of Intimate Relationships by Harriet Lerner. A woman's guide. Mm -hmm. Why does it fall to a woman? No, no, no. It's not that it falls to a woman, but it's a guide for women. Sounds like it's telling women that they should be the ones to change it. I'm coming in hot. <laughs> you are. You know why? It's hot today. I get it. Uh, this is the 2014 edition. It was originally published in 1985. It sold over 3 million copies in multiple languages. It's 258 oh. pages. Uh, the Kindle's eleven ninety nine. The paperback's nine ninety nine. The hardback is from nine fifty two. So I'm assuming they're just used and no longer in reprint. Um, an Audible is fifteen ninety six or one credit narrated by the author. Um, and speaking and who, of the, who's author, the author again, Harriet Lerner. Let me tell you just a little bit about her. Thank um, you. Okay. And this is from HarrietLerner.com. So. 
Um, Harriet did her undergraduate work at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, where she majored in psychology and East Indian studies and spent her junior year doing independent research in Delhi, India. She received an MA in educational psychology from Teachers College of Columbia University and a PhD in clinical psychology from the City University of New York. Uh, she completed her pre-doctoral internship at Mount Zion Hospital in San Fran and moved to Topeka, Kansas in 1972 for a two-year postdoc training program at the Menninger Foundation. She then joined the staff where she was a teacher and supervisor in the Carl Menninger School of Psychiatry for over two decades. After she closed shop in Topeka and moved oh. to Houston, she and her husband, Steve, who's also a psychologist, moved to Lawrence, Kansas, where they currently have a private practice. They have two grown sons, Matt and Ben. She is best known for her scholarly work on the uh, with on the psychology of women and family relationships, and for her many best-selling books. Feminism and family systems theory contribute to uh, continue to inform her writing, and she lectures and consults nationally. While her th- psychotherapy practice remains the heart of her work, um, and then she puts in a little bit of family history, which I found adorable. She says, Ooh, "I was say more." Right. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, where I spent my childhood at the Brooklyn Botanical Garden, the Brooklyn Public Library and the Brooklyn Museum. I love the Brooklyn Botanical Gardens. She says these places were free and just a subway token away. My mother, Rose, had strong principles about how to raise my sister, Susan, and I and me raise me. Excuse me. She says me, but I changed it. And then I realized she was correct. Uh, Even during the hardest economic times, (laughs) she made sure that we had four things that she believed were essential to our later success. One, good shoes. And in parentheses, she writes, I don't mean stylish. Two, a firm quality (laughs) mattress. Three, a top pediatrician. None other than Dr. Benjamin Spock. She actually went to Dr. Spock, who we talked about in um, uh, Oracle at the supermarket. And four, a therapist. Her mom is so progressive. She says, unlike other parents of the day who considered therapy to be the last resort of the mentally ill, my progressive Jewish mother thought it was a learning experience. She put me in therapy before I was three after obtaining a health insurance policy that provided weekly therapy sessions for $1. I often joke that my mother would send me to a therapist if I came home from school with anything less than a B plus. I'm exaggerating, but only a little bit. My mother's oh. belief in therapy. <laughs> my mother's belief in therapy undoubtedly contributed to my early career choice. I decided to become a psychologist before finishing kindergarten, a decision I never veered from. Oh, my ear fell off. <laughs> that is That's from her okay. website, and um, she's she's simply adorable. I absolutely adore her. Okay. So I feel a lot less defensive about uh, the title and it being for women because it just sounds like that's her area of expertise. Yes. It was feeling, I was I was coming off of some PTSD from Act Like a Lady, Think Like a Man by Steve Harvey. <laughs> Who is not a psychiatrist. Where it's like, here's what to do in your angry relationships. Thank or you. Thank you. Okay. So here this is the table. All right. So how, how do we dance with anger? There we go. Okay. Um, she gives a new introduction to this 2014 edition. And then there's 10 chapters. And then she definitely has like notes and an appendix and, and uh, all that. But um, chapter one, the challenge of anger. Chapter two, old moves, new moves, and counter moves. Chapter yeah, you three. You got to keep your anger fresh. 
Yeah. Well, she puts it all in this idea of dance, right? Like that you get into this routine and it's a dance, dance, uh, dance three or chapter three. Um, circular dances and couples when getting angry is getting nowhere. Chapter four, anger at our impossible Thank mothers. Mm-hmm. Chapter five. Oh my God. Using, uh-huh. Chapter five, using anger as a guide, the road to a clearer self. Chapter six, up and down the generations. And then um, chapters seven, eight, and nine, I'm not going to be covering. There are a lot in them, but just for the sake of time to keep this under an hour, I'm going to focus on one through six and then the epilogue, uh, chapter 10, beyond self-help. But Great. seven, eight, and nine, um, it's who's responsible for what, thinking in threes, talking about triangles and triangulation, and then tasks for the daring and courageous. So I'll just give like a one sentence overview of those, but, um, great. Why I chose this book. So my therapist recommended this book to me ever since I started seeing her six years ago and I bought it (laughs) and I read some of it. And then I completed reading it for this episode. And like, I don't struggle with anger per se, as I think anybody who's listened to this podcast knows, (laughs) but I do have trouble, um, getting angry at, at those that I love, like, and this was really helpful mm. in that regard. Like, le- like letting yourself feel uh, like if they violate a boundary, or they do something to upset you. It's hard to what feel anger without guilt or feel anger. Period. Or what is? What um, do you mean? You know, my therapist for a long time, she would be like, "So it sounds like you're angry." My second therapist in Chicago, and I'd be like, "I'm not angry. I'm frustrated." She's like, "Oh, so it's like Diet Coke. It's anger light." I'd be like, "Yeah." She'd be like, you know, frustration is a form of anger. And I'd be like, "Mm, no, like, I think it's a little Midwest nice. (laughs) And I think it's a little like, Mm. um, she talks about it in here. It was really helpful. Uh, uh, But I I did like it, especially when you have these family systems. Anyway, okay. So in the introduction to the 2014 edition, she explains (laughs) her experience of like writing this book. She got the initial advance and then she got fired because they were like, you're a terrible writer. And then she rewrote and she got the process of rejection letters and finally the publishing. Yeah. Because she was writing like a clinician and they were like, you, you cannot write like that. You have to get into the mind of your reader. And she was like, that's not at all how I've been trained. I've been trained to write like an academic, but she changed it completely and wrote directly to to the reader. Yeah. She was totally uncomfortable with it, but she said that she's received such a loyal following of readers. She says over four generations. So she's had like Mothers to daughters to mothers to daughters is amazing. Um, And she continues to get messages about the book from readers. And she says many mental health professionals have made it required reading for their clients and students. And I thought that was amazing. Wait, so when did the book first come out? 85. How old is the actual book? Oh my God. Holy cow. Yeah. So it's 35 years old, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Chapter one, the challenge of anger. So this is how she opens the book. Um, Anger is a signal and it's one worth listening to. So our anger may be a message that we are being hurt, that our rights are being violated, that our needs or wants are not being adequately met, or simply that something is not right. Our anger may tell us. Yeah. Like we read in um, uh, the the upside upside of your dark side. side. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. She says our anger may tell us that we are not addressing an important emotional issue in our lives or that too much of ourself, our beliefs, values, desires, or ambitions is being compromised in a relationship. Our anger Mm -hmm. may be a signal that we are doing more and giving more than we comfortably can do or give. Our anger may warn us that others are doing too much for us at the expense of our own competence and growth. Just as physical pain tells us to take our hand off the hot stove. Yeah. Just as physical pain tells us to take our hand off the hot stove, the pain of our anger preserves the very integrity of ourself. Our anger motivates us to say no in the ways in which we are defined by others and yes to the dictates of our inner self. Yes. Yeah. I love that. I've never heard. It's interesting. I've always tried to understand. So for instance, on my birthday every year, my family is like, don't lift a finger. You're not to do anything today. And it always, no, it drives me absolutely nuts. And every time I like try to get up to do something, they're like, no, 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 I've got it. I'll do it for you. And like my aunt or my grandma or my sisters are like waiting on me and doting around me. And it always makes me so angry and uncomfortable. And I never understand why. And you just put, she just put it into words, right? So what did you say at the incompetence of yourself? Not incompetence, but at the expense of our own competence and growth. Yes. At the expense of our own competence and growth. That's exactly it. Thank you for putting language to that. So here's kind of getting at the reason why you bristled at the title. So she gives context for how men and women's anger are treated differently for their anger. So she says... You know, just like how men are treated like heroes when they go to war and fight to the death. She says the direct Mm -hmm. expression of anger, especially at men for women, makes us unladylike, unfeminine, unmaternal, sexually unattractive. Mm -hmm. She says Mm -hmm. more recently in quotes, strident. And I thought I'd add shrill. That's a newer word that we're using. And so taken into yeah, the I haven't context, heard strident. Before. Yeah, take well, that was in 1985 too, right? Like that was a word yeah. that was used, I think, in the workplace. She's very strident in her beliefs. Yeah. Um, mm. She says it's an interesting sidelight that our language, created and codified by men, does not have one unflattering term to describe men who vent their anger at women. Even such mm-hmm. epithets as bastard and son of a bitch do not condemn the man, but place the blame on a woman, his mother. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. And this is just how like, there's not, we know from, for the love of men, there is no word for women. That means we have somehow lost our womanhood. Like you can, you can imply in many ways that a man has lost his manhood. And then here it's the opposite. I so really there's no like this was, yeah a precursor to for the love of men in fact 100 percent um, you can uh-huh. hear it yeah on our next weekly beef i'm going to read a an email from our listener as a follow-up to this and um i think it ties in really nicely so that was another reason right. that i read this book because i when i saw that email from our listener i was like oh that reminds me of this book okay she says the taboos against our feeling and expressing anger are so powerful that even knowing when we are angry is not a simple matter. When a woman shows her anger, she's likely to be dismissed as irrational or worth. So not only do we get chastised for expressing anger, but often we don't know when we're angry. And then, um, so, so it's really complicated. Anger is complicated for women. I think, especially in 1985, this was more present. I think we have been given a lot more examples in media and TV in, in, in our own, like, um, 
politics of women who show, mm-hmm. uh, who demonstrate quote unquote, very typical male behaviors and have suffered, but then we see more and more. Does that make sense? Yeah. And also, also when we actually do go, no, I'm angry and I'm showing it, it's dismissed as hysterical or That's hormonal right. That's right. or it, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Like I, right. very rarely does a woman ever show a display of anger. And let's be real. It would, it would have to be probably a white woman in a yeah. pantsuit who looks a certain yeah. way. And, 100%. but it's never, I've, I've never heard anyone go like, wow, she, she's really justified in her anger and she showed exactly the right amount of anger and we're on board. Like that That's never, right. that never happens. That's right. Um, yeah. Men get angry at work. Women get emotional, right? Mm -hmm, So I'm spending a lot of time in this first chapter because I thought she did such a great job of really setting the table for what she was talking about and giving permission for all kinds of women and their anger experiences to kind of um, see themselves in this book. So she says, why are angry women so threatening to others? And this was interesting. Um, She says that like, if we doubt our anger or feel guilty for having anger, we stay in place and we are unlikely to be agents of personal and social social change. And that made me think of that quote, like well-behaved women seldom make history. Yes. So change is, yeah, change is difficult for everyone, she says. So women learn to fear our own anger because it signals a necessity of change and then the disapproval of others. I'm going to tease a book that I'm going to cover yeah. on the next episode, and I'm not going to say what it is yet. But Ooh, in that geez. in that book, uh, it's a memoir. A woman says that she stopped being a quiet peacekeeper and became a loud peacemaker. Ooh, I love which, that. Yeah, which which sounds like it's the same here. Like when we're like, oh, I'm afraid to get angry. I'm just going to stay docile, keep yes. the status quo. Yes. So she says, we may begin to ask ourselves questions that serve to block or invalidate our own experience of anger. Questions like, is my anger legitimate? Do I have a right to be angry? What's the use of my getting angry? What good will it do? And I have heard those questions come out of my friends' mouths when they're talking about what makes them angry frequently. It's come out of my mouth. Well, what what good does it do to be irate? Yeah. Right. And I know my mom is very, she feels guilty when she feels angry. But Mm -hmm. I love what this author does. She questions these questions. She says, anger is neither legitimate or illegitimate, meaningful nor pointless. Anger simply is. To ask, Mm. is my anger legitimate, is similar to asking, do I have a right to be thirsty? Oh, shit. Oh, God. Wow. She goes on to be like, yeah, she goes on to be like, well, I just drank water 15 minutes ago. So why should I be thirsty now? (laughs) That's so funny. Um. So instead of asking those uh, questions, just, this is why I yeah. love the upside of your dark side so much because yeah. it's like no, your your feelings, you're you're having full humanity when you're feeling all your feelings all the time, and that's, that's what right. they're there for. And just get get used to experiencing them as they come up, as often as they come up. That's right, because that's the so best. Yeah, it is. And so instead, she says, asking these kinds of questions may be helpful. What am I really angry about? What is the problem and whose problem is it? Oh. How can I sort out who is responsible for what? How can I learn to express my anger in a way that will not leave me feeling helpless and powerless? When I'm angry, how can I clearly communicate my position without becoming defensive or attacking? And I was like, 
Damn. Dude, how does she answer these questions? Yes. In this book, she gives okay. some advice. Good. So then she next says like, well, you might be thinking, okay, fine about getting angry, but what do I do with that anger? And so she mm-hmm. offers this. If feeling angry signals a problem, venting anger does not solve it. Venting anger may serve to maintain and even rigidify the old rules and patterns in a relationship, thus ensuring that change does not occur. Your eyes are Holy so shit. wide. <laughs> They're so wide. They're so wide because I'm immediately going, there's one thing in my life that I'm like continually, continually fucking angry about and I'm in therapy for it. And I'm going like, oh, I 100%, I 100% am like, nope, I'm going to stay angry because this thing still hurts. Da-da-da-da. So I'm ready for the next sentence to come out of your mouth, Lisa Linky. She says the old anger in, anger out theory, which states that letting it all hang out offers protection from the psychological hazards of keeping it all pent up is simply not true. Those of us who are locked into the ineffective expressions of anger suffer as deeply as those of us who dare not get angry at all. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. So then what, how do we handle it? So what's the solve? So she, before she answers that, she goes into a couple more pieces of information and um, I have a lot to read here. So I'm taking the pillow off of my seven-year-old computer that has to run like a, like an old woman wheezing when, um, when it's on. So if you hear a little background noise, I apologize. Listen, we're got, we're all going to pretend it's a white noise machine and this is Thank an you. EMDR podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I had a little trouble with her terminology, but taking into context the original time it was written, I understood. And for the audience, she says, mm-hmm. if our old familiar ways of managing anger are not, are not working for us, chances are that we fall into one of both one or both of the uh, following categories in the quote, nice lady category. We attempt mm-hmm. to avoid anger and conflict at all costs. In the quote, bitch category, we get angry with ease, but we participate in ineffective fighting, complaining, and blaming that leads to no constructive resolution. Yes. But truthfully, I, what I found most interesting was the fact that she says they work equally as well to protect other people, blur our clarity of self, and ensure that change does not occur, even though they are totally different styles of managing anger. That's so interesting because it's like either way, it's the devil you know, right? Either way, it's not confronting the problem. Totally Mm -hmm. crazy. So she breaks down the typical experience for these two categories and um, see if either of these resonate for you in, in different situations. She says, if we are nice ladies, how do we behave? We stay silent or become tearful, self-critical or hurt. If we do feel angry, mm-hmm. we keep it to ourselves in order to avoid the possibility of open conflict. In addition, we may avoid making clear statements about what we think and feel when we suspect that such clarity would make another person uncomfortable. When we behave this way, our primary Mm -hmm. energy is directed toward protecting another person and preserving the harmony of our relationships at the expense of feeling uh, of defining a clear self. We accumulate a storehouse of unconscious anger and rage and anger is inevitable when our lives consist of giving in and going along when we assume responsibility for other people's feelings and reactions. And when we finally do quote blow, We may then confirm our worst fears that anger is indeed irrational and destructive. She says, although nice ladies are not very good at feeling angry, we may be great at feeling guilty. We may cultivate guilt in order to blot out the awareness of our own anger. Anger and guilt Mm -hmm. are just about incompatible. If 
feel guilty about not giving enough or not doing enough for others, it is unlikely we will feel angry about not getting enough. She says, nothing but nothing will block the awareness of anger so effectively as guilt and self-doubt. You know, it's so interesting because as women, we are taught that the pinnacle of being a good woman is being selfless. Yes. And anger is the opposite of being selfless. Anger is, I have boundaries. I deserve a certain kind of treatment or to take up space, et cetera. But it's interesting that we are totally fine transitioning into feeling guilt about anger because guilt means I'm putting someone else's needs before my own, right? So so I am the pinnacle of a woman. You oh my God, thank you. <laughs> that's the next That's the next paragraph because she says, um, it's not easy to gain the courage to stop feeling guilty because and use anger to question and define what's right and appropriate for our own lives because just when we're about to change, others redouble their guilt-inducing tactics. We're called selfish, immature, unfeminine, ungiving, cold. And she says such mm-hmm. slurs on our character and femininity are perhaps more than any of us can bear. When we are taught that our worth and identity are found to be found in loving and being loved, it's devastating to have our attractiveness and womanliness questioned. Just what you were saying. Yes. And this is, I feel like, especially with the book I'm going to present on the next uh, Full Frontal Friday, uh, Mm -hmm. Lisa, you and I have accidentally embarked on a series of uh <laughs> you love a series a gender role series i love god i love a series listen we did a finance series Thank we you. have done i feel like we did like a woo woo series with a new porth yeah. by yeah. eckhart tolle but but this goes back to for the love of men and talking about how these honestly truly arbitrary gender roles that we put um, people who are born with a penis and people who are born with vaginas into, yeah. they're so constricting and deny our full humanity. Like men, men are not allowed to, at least in Western modern society, be emotional and, and uh, embrace their quote unquote feminine sides and loving and sensitivity. And then women are not allowed to get angry and we're supposed to completely lose ourselves in the well-being of other people. And then we're getting angry. Men are getting angry. We're all losing our shit. We are physically hurting each other and emotionally hurting each other. And why? Why can we not have our full humanity and have it accepted? I I truly, the more we read about this, the more I'm like, this is really, we've been running our world and our lives based on these constructs that we made up first and foremost, and it's not really working for anybody. And why are we doing it? Burn it all down and start over. Okay. On the flip side. Thank you. We have bitches, right? They're not shy about getting angry and stating differences. It says, however, in a society that does not particularly value angry women, this puts us in danger of earning one or another of those labels that serve as a warning to silence us when we threaten others, especially men. Like the word unfeminine, but even more so, these labels have the power to either shock us into silence or further inflame us by intensifying our feelings of injustice and powerlessness. That's me. Yes. And it's dismissive because it's like, oh, she's just a bitch. Like, we don't take her seriously. She's just cranky all the time. She's just like this all the time. This is not legitimate. 
And she says, it's only part of the story because the negative words and images that depict women who do speak out are more than just cruel sexist stereotypes. They also hinted a painful reality. Words like nagging, complaining, and bitching are words of helplessness and powerlessness, which do not imply even the possibility mm. of change. Yeah, or legitimacy. Yeah. Oh, she's so, she's just bitching. She's just venting. It's not serious. Right. It's not like she brings up a valid point, right? It, it doesn't even take yeah. you um, uh, uh, seriously. So we may become right. a prime sca- scapegoat for men who dread female anger and for women who wish to avoid their own anger. And we may mm. be so driven by emotionality that we do not reflect on our options for behaving differently or even believe that new options are possible. Thus, our fighting protects the old familiar patterns in our relationship as sure does the silence of nice ladies. So she says, nice lady and bitches are simply two sides of the same coin, despite their radically different appearance. Um, after all is said and done or not said and done, we are left feeling helpless and powerless. And so she says she wrote the book to design. It's designed to help women move away from styles of managing anger that do not work for them in the long run. She says, my task is to provide the reader with insight and practical skills to stop behaving in our old predictable ways and begin to use anger to clarify a new position in significant relationships. And so that she doesn't, she has not written a tome. She focuses predominantly on family. It's interesting. I feel like this coming out in 1985, she must have had to walk such a tightrope. You better believe with it. What, with, and it's like, I wonder what would happen if she was publishing this book for the first time this year. You know, like, what if this came out in January? How would the language be different? It's like, I'm going to help you manage your anger in a way that's really going to work for you. As opposed to like, we should not be fucking kowtowing to any sort of patriarchy. Um, Well, listen, because you and I are just... Too, too critically thinking, chill, never upset, like, uh, always nice giving ladies. nice ladies. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, here, here's something that I love, and this is throughout the book. She says, when we can learn to use our anger energy to get unstuck in our closest and stickiest relationships, typically our family and our significant others, we will begin to move with greater clarity, control, and calm in every relationship we are in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, because it's not going to be boiling over. That's right. And so the scope of this book, she says, I wrote it to be useful. I sacrificed theory, no matter how interesting, if she didn't think it had a clear practical application to the lives of real women. And thank you. She also hates self-help and how toism. Which well, we'll what? Touch on but in the what? What? But she's oh, literally saying, here's how to navigate. She says the reader should be forewarned that this book does not lay out rules on how to do it in 10 easy steps. This is because the ability to use anger as a tool for change requires that we gain a deeper understanding and knowledge of how relationships operate. Oh, okay. I mean, that's like being like, hey, listen, here's, here is a book I wrote um, of different ways to put ingredients together and heat them, but I hate cooking. Like I but hate That recipes. is the psychotherapist in her talking okay she's not saying just do this and all of your anger will be solved because that is a lifetime journey let's get real yeah but i don't think self-help books are are necessarily the end-all be-all like here's how you solve a problem but it's like hey here's how to make yourself one percent better 
think about the time that it was published in 1985. Yeah, I know. I know. That's what drove all of those books, the how-to-ism. And so she says, how does one make use of this book? Very slowly. (laughs) Oh, good. Oh, yeah. So there are four um, tools uh, or four areas of skills that she's going to help sharpen. Um, One, we can learn to tune into the true source of our anger and clarify where we stand. Two, we can learn communication skills. Three, we can learn to observe and interpret non-productive patterns of interaction. And four, we can learn to anticipate and deal with counter moves or change back reactions from others. And we can learn to deal with counter moves. Sounds like I'm going to put the smack down on you. The verbal... I Kibosh. love that that's your uh, interpretation. And it sounds I'm like locked. It, you're expecting some anger. I am locked and loaded and ready to fucking go. <laughs> and I like that she's real about the difficulty. Because, Missy, what is my least favorite thing that anybody ever says in a self-help book? It's just that easy. Yes. And here's what she literally says. She says, for now, let me say that it is never easy to move away Mm. from silent submission or ineffective fighting toward a calm but firm assertion of who we are, where we stand, what we want, and what is and is not acceptable to us. Many of our problems with anger occur when we choose between having a relationship and having a self. And this book is about having both. So you know that spoke to me. Oh my God, 100%. You guys would be friends. Yes. So we are about halfway through our episode and uh, we're just through the first chapter. So I'm going to really scroll through these next couple chapters um, because what I want you guys to know, and I'm about halfway through my notes, which is, which is perfect is that as you can tell, she's very in depth. She gives a lot of examples and the way she structures the chapters and the rest of the book is through case studies and kind of examples of patients of hers. Mm-hmm. So she'll set up a lot of context about a couple or a mother daughter or uh, et cetera, and then describe what she's teaching through that couple and how they approached it. Okay. Great. So um, chapter two is old moves, new moves and counter moves. And Previously, she talked about this de-selfing, right? Like you have to carve out yourself. And she says, whenever you're in a relationship with someone or live with someone, inevitably you're going to need negotiating and give and take. And the problem occurs Mm -hmm. when one person, and it's often a wife, does more giving in and going along than is her share and does not have a sense of clarity about her decisions and control over her choices. And de-selfing means that too much of oneself, including your thoughts, wants, beliefs, and ambitions is negotiable under pressures from the relationship. Oh, shit. Yeah, that is a pow- that is a powerful statement. Believing yeah. that too much of yourself is negotiable, yeah, under the pressure of the relationship. And she says the person doing most of the sacrificing may ask, "What's wrong with me?" Instead of "What's wrong with this relationship?" Yes. Oh my God. Because as we learned from Mark Manson's book, "Love Is Not Enough." We all buy into a really damaging idea that people are meant to be, that love can conquer all. So if that's the case, then we must be willing to sacrifice X, Y, and Z. But if we believe that love doesn't conquer all, then we might be more inclined to say, no, this is what I need and I'm not willing to negotiate it. That's right. We won't sacrifice ourselves at the altar of of love. So I'm just going to talk about um, a couple versions of this 
um, like old moves, like th- things that happen in relationships that are out of balance. So one form sure. of deselfing is called underfunctioning, and there's in, in patterns and relationships, there's an underfunctioner and an overfunctioner. So okay. r- research in marital systems has demonstrated that when um, partners pair up and stay paired up, they're usually at the same level of independence or emotional maturity. And like a seesaw, it's the underfunctioning of one individual that allows for the overfunctioning of another. So like, uh-huh. say, um, and they provoke and reinforce each other's behavior. So the seesaw mm-hmm. becomes really increasingly hard to balance over time. Um, so like, say okay. one partner it does not feel comfortable expressing their emotions and the other one does. The other mm-hmm. ones will start expressing emotions and taking and expressing all the emotions for the other partner. So when the, when, when the one, like say, say the wife is uncomfortable expressing emotions and the husband is, I'm playing against stereotypes here. Um, sure. uh, and so she comes home and she says, and she seems upset and he says, well, what's wrong? And she's like, I had a bad day at work. And he finally gets her to tell him. She's like, my boss said something mean. He blows up about it and is like, that is ridiculous. He is a terrible person and you need to quit your job. Like he has all of these emotions so that she doesn't have to. Right. Interesting. And so his, uh, his over emotionality prevents her from actually developing hers. Right. Because it's all expressed there. Yes. And she's like, yeah, okay, well, I guess you said it. Sure. And her lack of emoting about it drives him to be more um, frustrated and emoted about it. Like, why mm-hmm. aren't you angry about this? Mm-hmm. Typically, she says, the, being at the bottom of the seesaw is culturally prescribed for women, right? So individual women may defy or being, reverse the Being at the bottom of the seesaw... So like typically Sorry, say that again, being at the bottom of the seesaw is a uh, culturally prescribed for women. So okay. we tend to be And that's the overfunctioning? Um no, in this example it would be the the underfunctioning. Oh. Well, I guess maybe not. I think it would just be that we're on the sh- short end of the stick. Okay. Yeah. But it's really hard I, to balance. Right. Because in in my mind, I'm thinking like so many women, you know, a lot of men are taught to be shut down and women are taught it's okay to be emotional as long as you're not angry (laughs) and and to to really overcompensate for their partners. Well, she also makes this sentence and she's like, this is out of vogue. These say these sayings like play dumb, let the man win or pretend he's boss or out of vogue. She says, but their message remains a guiding rule that lurks in the unconsciousness of countless women. The weaker sex must protect the stronger sex from recognizing the strength of the weaker sex, lest the stronger sex feel weakened by the strength of the weaker sex. Oh my God, this is a night. It's a veritable nightmare. And it's so what we do all the goddamn time. I said, it sounds ridiculous, but my ex from many years ago and I did this all the time. Um, oh, so that's yeah. I've, I've done this a, yeah. I've done this a million times and especially when you're like, well, I know how to solve this, but I need to make him think it's his idea or he's going to reject it and so exactly. I'm going to da 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 the so dance overperform under overfunctioning overfunctioning underfunctioning right, right so another right. another symptom is ineffective blaming versus assertive claiming and so a lot of us who fight ineffectively um we have this unconscious belief that 
the other person would have a very hard time if we were clear and strong. And so our anxiety and guilt about the loss of a relationship make it difficult for us to change and then stay on course when our partner reacts, right? So we we play the old school blame game, whose fault is it? Or instead of saying like, I am upset, I am having a reaction to this. We're like, you make me feel this way. Or instead of saying, I'm having some trouble with the way that our um, responsibilities are delineated and I need more time for myself, we'll say, um, we'll be like, you don't respect me. Does that make sense? So uh, that's mm-hmm. ineffective blaming versus assertive claiming. And then that she does- that makes oh, a lot sorry. of sense. Yeah. No, she I, does, it just oh, sounds like- oh. Uh, you guys, there's such a weird, awkward delay with our <laughs> remote. It's a different kind of awkwardness that we're not used to. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. Because as you know, we're normally so incredibly witty and on fire and just bantering like like time has stopped. Lisa, <laughs> Lisa. <laughs> Lisa's oh, dancing in the screen. And I thank you, Missy, for not having mentioned it once. You know, I saw it and clocked it and was like, I get it. I'm not wearing a bra, so if I took off my shirt, we'd have a whole different kind of rating. You are on the iTunes chart right now, so you can do what you want. It, well, so my computer started; the fan has been going. Uh, I'm sure everyone can hear it, but I I turn my screen brightness down. No, it's my fan, Lisa. It's my fan. Uh, my fan we got double fans. We got double. We listen. You know the, who got double fans. The point is, okay, Lisa is grabbing her boobs and shimmying them at me. <laughs> HR? Um, no. So uh, this is, we so sorely miss Matt Sav, our audio producer in Fairfax Village <laughs> Studios. It's terrible. Um, but hopefully the content is blowing your mind so that your ears can look past what else is happening. Uh, but what right. I keep, what I keep hearing over and over is this denial of self and this self-sacrifice to stay in a partnership or make it work. Yeah, and totally and it is it is a really scary thing, especially if you've put a lot of time and energy into a relationship. I've been there. It's I've true. had a really long-term relationship to say, no, this is what I need, or I'm learning myself, or I'm standing up for myself, et cetera. You know, if a dynamic is inherent where where one or both of the partners, heteronormative or not, um, feel like they have to sacrifice themselves. And it, it's, it's true. I think it's easier. It's it's much easier for me to do this in a new relationship when there's not as large of a time investment. You know, if it's been like two months and I'm going, hey, listen, I I need X, Y, or Z, and they go, Well, I don't want to give that to you. I go, Well, thank you. This has been fun. Like, please lock the door on the way out and wash your hands. (laughs) You know, but but I absolutely absolutely know the dance. That's such a good name for this book. The dance and the fear of, I am afraid to express what I need or my boundaries because I am afraid it will topple this structure that we've put so much time and effort and love and and resources into. So yeah, I'm going to start speeding through the rest of chapter two, listing some of these things. She uses a lot of case examples, like I mentioned. They're not always heteronormative. They do really even in 1985. Yeah, Um, hell yeah, they do seem to work out very well. <laughs> so I don't know if it's oh, like yeah. 1% of patients where she can use this or if it's like an amalgamation of, of everybody. Um, right. So uh, uh, 
there's this idea of a peacekeeper, like peace at any price, the person who just doesn't fight about it and keeps, mm-hmm. you know, um, de-selfing. People say yeah. it's not worth the, the, fart, the, the fart. It's not worth the fart, like we talked about. It's um, never worth the fart. But what I like is that she never shames anybody's um, method of coping with anger. She says that... Um, mm-hmm. Women who fall into the peacemaker or nice lady category are by no means passive, wishy-washy losers. Quite to the contrary, we have developed an important and complex interpersonal skill that requires a great deal of interactivity and sensitivity. We are good at anticipating other people's reactions, and we are experts at protecting others from uncomfortable feelings. This is a highly developed social skill that is all too frequently absent in men. And I said she was starting to get at the concept of emotional labor and mental load that had not been created outside of workplace definitions yet, which is so interesting. Because it was in the 80s yes. when um, Arlie Hochschild created the concept of emotional labor at work. Yes, yes. And it's, it's, it's this thing. Yeah, it's that women are so skilled at calculating and seeing the whole field. And that, that a lot of times is where, well, what good will come of my anger? Because if I express this, he or my partner is just going to lose their mind and then I've got to do damage control. And so I'd rather just keep them comfortable. And it's like, it is a huge skill set. It is an enormous skill set. So, so this chapter, she was the example of this woman, Barbara, who had signed up for her, her workshop in anger and then called a few days before to cancel and was like, my husband will let me go. He, he thinks it's not important. So I can't come. And so she uses this to kind of describe Back in the days when you could just call up the speaker of a, of an event. Like, could you imagine being like Gabby Bernstein or Brene Brown? I can't come. I think it was like a local Topeka, Kansas event. Wow. Listen. She so she uses it to describe like this uh, the peacemaker right and then also to talk about when there's not enough uh, when the I versus the we is out of balance um, and the more oh. that we carve out a clear and separate I she says the more we can experience and enjoy both intimacy and aloneness so clarifying the problem helps carve out this clear and separate separate eye. She says, if Barbara had a clear eye to begin with, she would not define her problem as my husband won't let me go to the workshop. Instead, she might say something like the following to herself. My problem is this. If I cancel the workshop, I will feel bitter and resentful. If I go to the workshop, my husband will feel bitter and resentful. She says, but clarifying is so scary, right? We have this unconscious belief that carving out an eye is destructive and that it will diminish and threaten our partner who retaliate or leave, which is your favorite to say, like, it all comes down to being left alone. Yeah, it's like it's uh, we're all well, and this is this is also the problem when you defined the end-all be-all of happiness as being in a relationship or that a successful relationship is only one that lasts till death do us part. And it's these sort of structures that get us in these mindsets in the first place of like, well, I... I have to be as careful as I can around this person because a successful relationship is only one that lasts a long time. That's right. She does. And I love, she just validates it all the way through. You're never wrong for the way you're doing this. She says, fighting and blaming is sometimes a way both to protest and protect the status quo when we are not quite ready to make a move in one direction or the other. So Mm -hmm. here are those counter moves and change back reactions. So she says, I do not wish to convey the bleak impression that we must stay put on the bottom of the seesaw, lest our partner as well our relationship come tumbling down. 
Thank you. She says that may happen as a consequence of our change and growth, but more frequently and depending on how we proceed, the other person will grow along with us and our emotional ties will ultimately be strengthened. We need a counter move or change back reaction from the other person whenever we begin to give up the old ways of silence, vagueness, ineffective fighting, and begin to make clear statements about the needs, wants, beliefs, and priorities of the self. And so, yes. And yeah. and guess what? If people do this from the beginning, when you're dating, if you're able to, you are going to get a partner from the onset who can handle that stuff. Because if you don't practice this right in the beginning and you're tiptoeing, et cetera, you, how do you know how that person's going to react? So if you let yourself be yeah. seen, the ones who can't handle it will fall away. It's hard because you know? she says that most often we're attracted to people who will bring up old emotional wounds from our first family. And that a hundred percent. Absolutely. We, we recreate patterns. Like, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, okay. So here's a, a Murray Bowen, who created the Bowen's family systems theory, emphasizes the fact that in all families, there's powerful opposition to one member defining a more independent self. And the opposition invariably goes in successive steps. Number one. You are wrong with volumes of reasons to support this. Number two, Mm -hmm. change back and we will accept you again. And number three, if you don't change back, these are the consequences which are then listed. Um, And so common counter moves look like this. We're accused of coldness or disloyalty or selfishness or disregard for the others. How could you upset your mother by saying that to her? Uh, We may receive verbal or nonverbal threats that the other person will withdraw and terminate the relationship. We can't be close if you feel that way. How can we have a relationship if you really mean that? And so she says, our job is to keep clear about our own position in the face of a counter move and not prevent it from happening or to tell the other person that they shouldn't be feeling that way. She says, most of us want the impossible. We want to control not only our own decisions and choices, but also the other person's reactions to them. We not only but want to make a change, control that's that. right. She mm-hmm. says we want the other person to like the change we make. So she spends a good amount of time here talking about how our own resistance to change is a powerful force. And we're deeply affected by the patterns and traditions of past generations, if and especially if we are not consciously aware of them. So um, uh, she's like, it's really hard for us to learn that everybody has a right to think everything that and you know just like we do they can think and feel whatever they want and you know she says there's nothing wrong with wanting to change someone else the problem is that it usually doesn't work yeah (laughs) and and you're just gonna be so frustrated yeah she says um we're able to move away from ineffective fighting only when we give up the fantasy that we can change or control another person right yeah okay yeah chapter three um this is about couples getting stuck right and she says the big key is just doing a lot of observation. It's it's important to become aware of what we're doing in interactions when we're angry. It's difficult because we're so emotionally reactive during anger and self-reflection isn't the same as self-blame, but recognizing the ways that others behave with us has something to do with the way that we behave with them, right? Mm-hmm. So she does a lot of talk in this chapter about emotional labor and mental load and the feeling work that wives um, often are uh, called to do expressing feelings for herself and their husband. Um, oh, yeah. And this chapter was really interesting in laying out what what happens when couples have the over-functioning and under-functioning, under-functioning pattern and what happens when you change the dance. Um, and it was really reminiscent of previous relationships I've had. 
uh, couples we all know. It was super interesting and lots of information and background on emotional pursuers and distancers. If that's your thing, I would definitely recommend reading this chapter. Um, chapter um, four. Say, is say the last thing again. Oh. Emotional oh, yeah. pursuers, pursuers and, and distance distancers, right? So like... I so avoidant, so avoidant yeah. attachment style and anxious That's attachment right. style, which we have an episode on the book attached if you don't know what I'm talking about and want to know more. That's right. Chapter four is about impossible mothers. This was a really interesting chapter. She she went through. Um, <laughs> thank you. She This case was about a woman named Maggie and her mother and Maggie had just had a newborn. And when her mother would come to stay, she the anger just roiled up within her. This was a great example. Wow. The main takeaway for me was about really gaining insight and gathering information without bias from the person mm-hmm. you're struggling with. Like learning, for example, Maggie started asking her mother's uh, her mother about how she learned to parent, about her past and her personal history. Because mm-hmm. when you start making these changes, it's hard to feel emotional closeness while you yeah. start this new dance. And keeping that right. emotional closeness can help temper the anxieties of loss and rejection. Right, um, right. And I I thought that was great. Um, and she does say rene- renegotiating relationships with persons on our own family tree yields especially rich rewards because the degree of self that we carve out in this arena greatly influences the nature of our current relationships. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Current, um, not past. Yeah, because like okay. if I can define a clearer self in my first family then it's going to be much easier with my current relationships. And if I can do that in my current relationships, like my significant other or my children, then it's going to be even easier with relationships at work because those are the least stickiest, right? It gets stickier in my current family. Right, And then it right. gets even stickier in my first family. Um, right. Wow. Okay. Chapter five, and then I'll just kind of sum up and get to the very end and I'll give some uh, a list. I know we're running a little over, but we just have a little extra time explaining what's happening. Um, Listen, nobody, listen, nobody's nobody's going to care if we are five minutes over an hour. You guys, it's, you get, it's not like you get your money back. If we go an hour ten, and we're giving you gold, a fear of um, uh, I was worried that people were gonna be mad, and so I need to, you know what? I'm gonna practice this. Are you ready? I am feeling anxious that I'm not gonna be coming in under an hour, but I would like to cover this content. Uh, Lisa, I accept, and we will just do a mini-sode that is five minutes long. <laughs> It'll just be the intro, and then we'll go, thank you so much, and then we'll be Thank done. you so much. Okay. So she, um, using anger as a guide. What I loved, this chapter was great about anger at work, denying anger, the fear of destructiveness. Um, it, for those of us that have a little little experience about practicing our anger and we fear that if it gets out, like the building will actually explode. Um, right. And she also comments on how it's okay if, if you don't have clarity about your anger. Again, like I love that she's, the whole message is like, you're okay, which is why I think this was so, such a bestseller and so good is that I don't think women yes. at that time had received the message that it's okay to be angry and that it's okay if you don't even understand why you're angry. You yes. Know? Yes. Yeah. No, I um, can see how this is like a seminal yeah. foundational book. Yeah. But I want to say she talks about this time when her, um, I think her five-year-old, she was cooking in the kitchen, getting dinner ready. And she looked over and her five-year-old had an apple at the table and a knife and he was getting ready to cut it. 
And she was saying, put it down. And he was saying, no, put it down. And she was saying, no. And so she said, Matthew, I said again, this time without anger, when I see you with that sharp knife, I feel scared. I am worried that you will cut yourself. At this point, Matthew paused, looked me straight in the eye and said calmly, that's your problem. <laughs> no. Yes. And she said, He's to which, yes, she said, to which I replied, you're absolutely right. It is my problem that I'm scared. And I'm going to take care of my problem right now by taking that knife away from you. And so I did. <laughs> <laughs> but I love, says, I love that the psychologist, the psychologist <laughs> five-year-old's like, well, that's your problem, mom. Because she was like, <laughs> put it down and speaking in anger. And she's like, this is not working. Let me do what I work on. And then he was like, that's your problem. Um, <laughs> and she also says... It. Of course, no one talks in calm eye messages all the time. When my husband broke my favorite ceramic mug that had been with me since college, I did not turn to him with perfect serenity and say, you know, dear, when you knock my cup off the table, my reaction is to feel angry and upset. It would mean a great deal to me if you would be more careful next time. Instead, I cursed him and created a small scene. <laughs> Yes, of course. Are you kidding me? I will never forget, by the way, I will never forget the moment. So my, my great grandmother had this beautiful oh white God. with blue hand painted fine bone China sets. <laughs> I, I have, I never met my great grandmother, but she was my mother's grandmother yeah. and my mother adored her the same way that I adore Nana. Great. And so my mother had inherited this beautiful fine bone china um china set and I actually have it in my closet right now but I'll tell you there was one teacup left one very delicate beautiful hand painted white with blue design teacup left and when I was in elementary school you know you know that I dropped no. and shattered that that teacup on accident and the look on my mom's face. She didn't have to say anything. She didn't have to say anything. I remember it vividly. I remember the kitchen, the daytime, the apartment. I remember everything. And she just, she didn't say anything. She said, it's all right. But I have never been more heartbroken in my life as when that happened. And, you know, my mom has her master's degree in psychology. Yeah. And uh, I think she was probably putting the full force of that degree and those skills on display. She was counting to 10, 3,000 times. Because <laughs> I was like, I was like nine years old. It was a nightmare. Oh, anyway, so anyway, moving on. Karen, okay. I'm so sorry that happened. Mom, um, I'm sorry. But here, here's what I like. She says, there's nothing inherently virtuous in using I messages in all circumstances. If our goal is to simply let someone know we're angry, we can do it in our own personal style and our style may do the job or at least make us feel better. If, however, she says... And I go, Lisa, Lisa, <laughs> I'm not, it's fine. Lisa, it's fine, but I just wish that you'd be less of a dipshit. Okay? And I would I say, it seems, like, it seems like you're angry. I'll try that. I'll try being less of a dipshit. How about that? No, I um, just feel like when you are a dipshit, it drives yeah. me crazy. Yeah. And this is my style of letting you know. It sounds like you have an issue. And Lisa! I mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's that's how you. that's how it's done. And life is abundant. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Good night. Here's what she says. If, however, our goal is to break a pattern in an important relationship and or to develop a stronger sense of self that we can bring to all our relationships, it's essential that we learn to translate our anger into clear, non-blaming sta- statements about our own self. And I was like, fine. Uh, fine. <laughs> but she does, you know she she does say like to recognize our lack of clarity is not a weakness but an opportunity a challenge and a strength there is no reason why women should be clear about the i right who am i what do i want what do i deserve yeah. these are questions that we all struggle with and for good reason because for too long we have been encouraged not to question but accept other defined notions of our true nature our maternal responsibilities our feminine role and so forth and so yeah, we've been and taught to sure everyone else's comfort comes above our own it's like you are her her literal next sentence was um we have been taught to substitute with other questions. How can I please others? How can I win love and approval? How can I keep the peace? And so she says, it's an act of courage to acknowledge our own uncertainty and sit with it for a while. And you I are said, gonna love the next book I cover. I can't wait. You are gonna love it so much. Okay, so chapter six was about a father-daughter relationship. Um And Harriet really built this chapter cumulatively. So this example demonstrates lack of clarity, blaming other behaviors she previously talked about. Chapter seven, which is who's responsible for what, um, was really about defining what to take accountability for and how to clarify your anger by gathering data, deciding who has the problem, naming it a section on actual emotional labor and the tendency to fix it. And then Mm -hmm. chapter eight was about triangles uh, and triangulation um, and used as example of a mother and son who, uh, a son who didn't want to marry inside the Jewish faith. And the triangulation that was going on was really well described. Um, So she talked about the mother, the son and his um, intended fiance and the length of the work, the time that it took and how, when you change the triangulation in one relationship, she shows with like diagrams. It it was really, really cool. And just for those of you who are Oh, go ahead. And you know what it you know what it reminds me of is yeah. uh diff- the book Difficult Conversations. Yes. So yes. and we have an episode on that with amazing guest host Jesse Chapman. So yeah. uh books if you want to hear more about this topic, um next week's episode is for you. For the love of men, part one and two uh yes. are also excellent. Just a couple a couple episodes away in the feed. Difficult conversations. Um it sounds like she really laid the groundwork for a lot of the books that came yeah. after this. Yeah. yeah. So um, it, just for, if you're not aware of triangulation, it's, you can think about it like when you gossip, like um, if Misty, uh, if I had a problem with Misty, but I went to Sav to talk about it instead of going directly to Misty. Mm. Um, and so when you bring a third person into the relation, into the relationship, that's basically triangulation. And you see it a lot of time in families, um, a mother and a father have, a, there's a problem child in the family and the mother's relationship with the problem child is different than the father's relationship with the problem child. Right. So when right. if the right. father gets right. angry, the mother immediately comes in to rescue and then the father and the mother are angry. So like, it, it's mm-hmm. a very interesting philosophy. Okay. We're at chapter nine right. and I'm going to give you examples of behaviors to help diagnose yourself. And these are just a few. She has huge lists and it's really great. So great. Pers- pursuers, React to anxiety by seeking greater togetherness in a relationship and place a high value on talking things out and expressing feelings and believe others should do the same. 
versus Sound, sounds adjacent to anxious attachment style. Yes. Versus distancers who seek emotional distance or physical space when stress is high and consider themselves to be self-reliant and private persons, more do-it-yourselfers. Anxious attachment style, or yes, yes. or avoidant, excuse me, avoidant attachment style. Yes. Underfunctioners tend to have several areas where they just can't get organized, become less competent under stress, thus inviting others to take over. And overfunctioners know what's best not only okay. for themselves, but for others as well, and move in quickly to advise, rescue, and take over uh-huh. when stress hits. Misty, you and I are overfunctioners. <laughs> Uh, hundo P. I don't know what you mean, Lisa. What I'm thinking is that you're feeling sure. stressed about this podcast and that sure. I sh- we should probably have a strategy meeting. Sure. Um, and Fine. again, I'm just listing two bullet points. There are a ton and it's really helpful. Um, blamers right. respond to anxiety with emotional intensity and fighting and have a short fuse. And she says, remember that none of the above categories are good or bad, right and wrong. They're just simply different ways of managing anxiety. You will have a problem, however, if you are in an extreme position in any one of these categories or if you are unable to observe and change your pattern when it's keeping you angry and stuck. Mm. So she says, wherever you begin and whatever task, task you do choose for yourself, here's a review of some basic do's and don'ts to keep in mind when you're feeling angry. Do speak up when an issue is important to you. Mm. Don't strike while the iron is hot. Do take time to think about the problem and clarify your position. Mm. don't use below the belt tactics. These include blaming, interpreting, diagnosing, labeling, analyzing, preaching, moralizing, ordering, warning, and a many, many, many more. Wow. Do speak in I language. Don't make vague requests. Like I want you to be more sensitive to my needs. Um, do try to appreciate the fact that people are different. <laughs> Did you like my voice on that? <laughs> yeah. Um, don't participate in intellectual arguments that go nowhere. Do recognize that each person is responsible for his or her own behavior. Mm -hmm. Don't tell another person what he or she thinks or feels or should think or feel. Thank you. Do try to avoid speaking through a third party. That's like triangulation and gossiping. And don't expect change to come from uh, hit and run confrontations. Like, P.S. What you did this morning really fucking pissed me off and I hate you, but now I have to go to work. Bye. (laughs) Oh, I can't take it. Oh my God. I can't stand those. I can't stand those. Yeah. 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 She also has some lists okay. about regarding gossiping and triangles at work. I'm not going to do them now for time, but it was helpful. And also some detriangulating rules, which were super, super um, uh, helpful. And also in like identifying when triangulation is going on in your family or in your friendships. I was like, oh, yeah, I see that. Okay. Oh, last 100%. Minute, least, yeah. Yeah. Epilogue beyond self-help. I loved how she was really hard on self-help in her own self-help book. She had three points to make. <laughs> the first one, she said, self-help advice can be hazardous to our health if a, quote, do-it-yourself approach isolates us from other women. She oh, says... thank you. Um, this is what yes. your mom was talking about when your mom came on. Oh, it was? Remind me. Remind me. Yeah, oh, so she, yeah. She, was, she was just saying how, like, that's how, you know, when when she was raising a family like it wasn't you didn't tell people about your problems you went to a self-help book instead because it wasn't cool to let people know that your family was struggling or you were having a hard time or there was an issue coming up and that's like that's it's interesting because that's how self-help got so popular that's right it's one Um, of the reasons that that is her 
second um, point, my, the first point I neglected to copy and paste in, but here it is. Self-help advice can be bad for our emotional well-being if it ends up conveying the message that major changes can be made easily or quickly. That, for example, <gasps> if only you are motivated enough and follow this book carefully enough, you will achieve the happily ever after life. And I said, bitch. And I said, I love that Key and Peel sketch. I've been, th- and I said, I was like, this bitch knows what is up. She would have had this podcast if there were podcasts in 1985. She would have have been you. I am confident that epilogue did not appear in the first. Probably. Oh, interesting. Yes. Yes. Because it's victim blaming. We go back to this all the time. But when when any self-help book says like, well, if only you try hard enough or if if your thoughts were better quality, you'd have all these things because this right. works. This works if you do it right. It's like, fuck that. Run as far away from those books as fast as you can. She says, finally, self-help advice always runs the risk of fostering a narrow focus on our personal problems to the exclusion of the social conditions that create and perpetuate them. This book is not oh, about personal anger. And personal change. But as feminism has taught us, the personal is political. This means that there is a circular connection between the patterns of our intimate relationships and the degree to which women are represented, valued, and empowered in every aspect of society and culture. And I said, bam. Amen. Oh my God. Thank you, Harriet. So Lisa, amazing job. Would you say that this book, at least in this 2014 edition with this epilogue, is intersectional? In some ways. She does not address um, race or class. Um, she does address religion. She does address a sexuality. I think even in 2014, it was a little early for um, uh, her to be including... Um, transgender in that sense uh, on a reprint. And so uh, I think in the, no, in the ways that it could be, but also I think for her to address race and class in this would be a tome, like a huge, and she did do other ones. She did like the dance of, she does a couple other things. Like she wrote a couple, she's written six books. So uh, no, but also I think at the time that it originally came out in 1985, it was definitely providing a different angle and, and voice than, than um, needed. It's, it's, it sounds like it's intersectional light because she mentioned the larger systems at play, but she doesn't really dive into them. No, and she doesn't talk right. about, and you know, as a white Jewish woman living in Topeka, I don't know if I would listen to her if she talked about race. Sure. Uh, I, I don't know what her access is to patients who experience that. Uh, so so that, that'd be interesting. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And did this book need to be written, Lisa? 100% and definitely in 1985. Yes, I feel the same way. And um, is there anything that you put into practice from this book? I really started thinking about the clarifying of a, of, of my anger, um, which I think after the upside of your dark side, not, I've always felt justified in my anger. <laughs> but I think um, the clarifying is an interesting way uh, of looking at it and noticing that I do triangulate in my family and noticing like uh, if I want to have a more clear sense of self that I, I need to maybe cut that out. Yeah, absolutely. And um, do you have homework for me? I would love for you to think about one thing that makes you angry 
Um, it doesn't yep. have to be a major thing, but just like one thing that makes you angry and just observe. Don't even ha- get to the clarifying part. Just observe, like observe what happens between you and this situation. And if it's one person or another, you know, like what is making you yeah. angry about it? Um, and um, I can send yeah. you my notes here if, if that would help you. Um, I don't need them. I've got it. I'm ready. Okay. Uh, okay. But we'll, well, but we'll check in, we'll check in on the. We'll check in on the next weekly beef. So who is this book perfect for and who's it terrible for? I think it's perfect for women um, or anybody who works with women. Um, uh, I think, and I just think, I think it's not just women who have trouble expressing anger. I think we've kind of, this positive psychology movement has really made anger a not cool thing. So I think people who struggle expressing anger would appreciate this but if if you were male, you might not identify with the historical and kind of generational context of what it means to be feminine and what it means to like stay in your place. Um, and I think it's terrible for people who uh, really adhere to patriarchal systems and expect women to be seen and not heard. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because books like this, though feel like they need to be read by those people to get that perspective, you know, even though it may not be well received. Yeah. Well, Lisa, this was amazing. Thank you so much for dancing around the dance of anger (laughs) in this closet. Oh, there's that bra again. Thanks. Oh, thank you. And thank you. (laughs) Thank you for letting me go over time. And for all of our listeners who've been writing us and saying that you found us during this time, we're so grateful that you're listening. And you say that we sound like your friends. We are your friends. We are 100% your friends. Don't show up at our house. We're better than your friends, than your normal (laughs) friends, because we're we're in your pocket. You can pull us out at any time and we're there for you. There's hundreds of hours of content. It sounds like uh, a flashlight. We are the we are the flashlight of self-help. We're there for your pleasure whenever you need it. Just take us it. out and do what you will. Um, we don't know. You're in the privacy of your own home. And if you're liking this, you know, throw us a review or a rating or subscribe because that helps other people find us too. Yeah. And with that, everybody, life is is abundant. abundant. Oh, Misty, you're a damn dream. Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less, was produced by Misty Stinnett, Lisa Linky, and Matt Sav. Our theme song was also written by Matt Sav. He's amazing. <laughs> do you want to get in touch? You do. Email us at gohelpyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. And you know, you can also find us on the social medias, Instagram at gohelpyourselfpodcast, Twitter at G-H-Y podcast, or check out our website, gohelpyourselfpodcast.com. And if you liked our podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes to help other people discover our show. It's really the least you can do. And why don't you tell all of your friends? Bye! Bye.